This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel, and all signs point to an election very soon. Maybe as soon as this weekend. The government just announced a deal to build a Moderna plant. Yesterday, three liberal MPs announced that they won't be running again. So we'll read the tea leaves on that. Provincially, the Ford government is still sticking to its refusal to mandate vaccination for healthcare and education workers, even if a swath of their supporters don't believe in the science, you'd think they would believe in the math because most people want it. We just heard that the Long-Term Care Association is now demanding it, and I think they will pay dearly for that position, but I'm going to soon see what our panel thinks. So let us begin there. Before we begin, let me give you the numbers. Call in with your opinion, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior VP and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Member of Provincial Parliament for Mississauga South. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi. Hi, Libby. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Let us begin with John. So uh, what do you read into the Ford government's refusal to mandate vaccinations uh, I see it as something that, you know, uh, kind of silent majority type people are actually quite angry about. Well, I, you've, you've got both sides, quite frankly, to be on this. You've got obviously some, and you're saying the silent majority or, or vocal majority or minority that, that want to have it mandated. I think the premier has been pretty clear about it. And I think that he's always said, look, he has always said that people should and ought to get vaccinated. He's, he's made it abundantly uh, clear <clears throat> where he stands on making sure that people get vaccinated. He's made it available uh, in, in as many places as possible. He's even getting go, old gold buses now transformed into vaccine mobile units. So there's absolutely no reason for people not to get vaccinated. The people who are not getting vaccinated are people that are either for, for other whatever reasons there are, uh, are not uh, wanting to do it. So whether you mandate it or not, you're still going to get yeah, but, yeah, but think, John, we're not we're not it's saying anybody that, who doesn't want one should get one. It's just why expose vulnerable people? Uh, you, and you, if you are a patient uh, or a resident of long term care, you can't even know if the person that you're working with that is coming very close and touching is is vaccinated. And those people are vulnerable. Well, no, and I and I and I hear that, and I understand that there are, so especially in the health um, areas and long-term care facilities, and in other areas. I know Karen, whose father is in a long-term care facility, uh, will have more to say on this as well. But I, I, I listen. There, there is an absolute argument to be made that healthcare workers ought to have and should be mandated. I don't know if it should be a province-wide mandate for vaccines. I'm not necessarily in favor of that. I think people have the responsibility, a personal responsibility, quite frankly, to get vaccinated as long as. The government makes it accessible uh, as they have been, uh, not only in Ontario but across uh, across Canada. But but I do think that there's an argument to be made that healthcare workers and those that are in the facilities of, of looking after others um, should be and should be mandated to uh, to be vaccinated. And I think it should be their organizations that that decide that they should be mandated versus the government. Well, what is? But it's the government that has to mandate it for it to happen. What is the hesitation? Is it playing to the anti-vaxing base? No, I, no, not at all. I think, I think, quite frankly, and as you mentioned in your uh, in your uh, monologue or in your introduction, uh, Libby, that that you know there are some conservative supporters who who uh, want to have mandated. I, I think it's just something that comes down to 
moral and and human rights uh, of people saying that you know mandating somebody to get a vaccine versus making sure that people know the importance of getting vaccinated and the, and the fact that it is saving lives and it is working out there as you as you, you know, the producer said earlier you know of the people that are of the 300 cases of those that test positive uh, uh, you know the vast majority of those are unvaccinated so there is an absolute argument to be made that vaccines work and as long as governments make it accessible and say to people that they need to be vaccinated and they should be vaccinated um you know going to okay, the next level John. which is mandating it i think becomes a problem Okay, uh, that is a very tortured explanation. So let's move it over to Karen. What do you think is behind the government's refusal to mandate it for people who come into contact with vulnerable populations? I can't. I don't have an explanation for it. You know, I I think part of what our collective challenge, though, is, let me to be quite honest with you, is that the restrictions we have in place now make it really easy for unvaccinated people to continue doing whatever they want to do. Because we still have to physical distance. We still have to wear masks while we're indoors. We are still required to do all of those things. And so when you, as an employer, when I say to my team, you need to get a vaccination, um, they'll say, or what? Or you have to be tested and wear a mask. Okay, but you're testing me and wearing, I'm wearing a mask anyway. So it, and until we make a shift and say only vaccinated people can do certain things, that, that will then require certain things, other things to happen. And then, but, but right now, as long as the province of Ontario is mandating mask wearing and mandating physical distancing and keeping us in step three, there is not a really strong argument to say anybody else should get vaccinated. Well, I, I mean, you know, that, Except for the, the, but one thing I do disagree with John on is I don't actually think it's a personal choice to get vaccinated. It's not. It's a personal choice, but you don't have a human right to work in long-term care or to work with small children who are unvaccinated. And no right is absolute. And I think that the teachers have to, the teachers union should give its head a shake. I think that, you know, any healthcare organization that is not mandating their members to get vaccinated should give their head a shake because it's one of those, it's not your personal choice bumps into someone else's personal choice to not get sick. And the only way that this can happen is if we all exercise our responsibility to get vaccinated. Well, the only way it can happen is if the government says, hey, that's the law. Charles Sousa, and, uh, you know, when it comes to education, it really doesn't make sense because there's nine other vaccines they have to take. Absolutely. I mean, we've had vaccine vaccine passports for kids going through school. Uh, all my children had to do it. I recall myself having to do it as well. But I, I think to the point, why is Ford not mandating vaccines for frontline workers or a vaccine passport for travelers, or at least for those that are reporting to frontline and those most vulnerable? I think it's simply because the, he's appealing to a faction within his party. And that is a real issue. They are unvaxxed. They're, they're the ones that are, that are fighting for human rights. And they're saying it's a human right not to get vaccinated. Fair enough. But you've already made the argument. Both John and Karen have made the argument that they do not have the right, however, to inflict harm on someone else. And this is it. The numbers tell the story. John rightly put it. The majority of those that are being hospitalized are unvaccinated people. Well, and, it, and it doesn't mean that people that get vaccines aren't going to carry it. That's true. They will. But they won't have the same effect on our, on our hospitals and a burden on our, and our, and our hospital beds as they would if they were not vaccinated. Well, yeah, yeah Charles, but what, you know, the thing, what's your take on the political calculus? Because, yes, he's got a faction inside his party, but, you know, I'm, I'm amazed at how oh, angry I, people. Listen, I think he should he do the passport. I think he should absolutely stand up. He just, say, just uh, one at a time. The problem and the human right. We have an obligation, a responsibility, and a duty to ensure that people that are going to hospital uh, are doing so because they took the precautions to be vaccinated. If they haven't been vaccinated, what are you doing? You're putting other people in harm's way. The elective surgeries are being delayed. Oh, so many other things are being delayed because people have decided not to be vaccinated and they're putting the rest of us in, in harm's way. Uh, Karen, you think that his, his daughter's anti-vaccine stance might ha- have some bearing? Well, it could, could make for an awkward dinner conversation. But, you know, I, I would hope that he would, you know, recognize his role as the premier and not let his family dynamic interfere with what the right thing to do is. 
And the right thing to do is to say to people, if you want to continue on in your roles, in your jobs or going to certain places and having access to certain things, then you need to be vaccinated. And I, I, I can't understand his reticence and his complete refusal to, to begin thinking about this. And when, if we enter a fourth wave and if the premier is for, like, met with the decision to shut down again or take a stand on a vaccine passport, I, I, I find it remarkable to think that he wouldn't choose a vaccine passport. Well, the vaccine passport, I mean, and, and John, I mean, this is something that his natural constituency mm-hmm. of business people want. And they don't want the burden of being the enforcer. Uh, so, uh, again, I mean, you know, whatever that faction of his party has to say, I think he's taking a big chance. He's got a majority government. It's not from anti-vaxxers. Well, and also, let me just also address the issue of, of whether or not he takes any advice or if it's awkward for his family members, be a daughter or wife or anybody that if they have a stance and whether or not they'll have an influence on, on the premier. I, I can assure you that I'm sure he listens like all parents do to their kids, but, but will make decisions what he thinks is best for the province, not necessarily uh, in, in various agreements with his kid or with his, uh, with his other family members. So I can, I can assure you the premier has his own independent mind when it comes to that. But on, on the issue of, of look, I, and I said this on my, my, my former response, Libby, that I do think that there's, there ought to be some mandating for healthcare workers. I, I'm not in favor, personally, I'm not in favor of, of having a, a, a little province-wide mandate for vaccines. I, I think as long as you make it accessible and available to as many people as possible. But on the vaccine passport, let me just tell you about that. I think that there is an issue here that if every province decides to either go with the vaccine passport, as we're, as we're hearing and seeing in Quebec and other provinces looking at it, and some provinces decide not to do it, and you've got this disjointed, you know, uh, uh, hodgepodge of, of, you know, some provinces wanting it, some jurisdictions not wanting it. This is where I think there ought to be some federal jurisdictional leadership when it comes to this kind of stuff. And I know that when you say the word passport, you know, when it's international travel, then yes, it's a Canadian, it's a federal or, a, you know, responsibility. But when it comes to, you know, citizens in, in their respective provinces, then premiers have the right to be able to say, yeah, I want my people to have vac- passports. But I do think that there could be some federal leadership here where there's not on this issue. Yeah, they uh, said that they the, the feds have said they're going to deal with it, but they haven't. I have some breaking news that we'll get to in a moment. I also want to get to some of these calls. But the breaking news is not that affects us directly, but uh, uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo yes. has resigned. Yeah. But I just saw that. Uh, yeah, just this second. So I'm telling everybody we will get to it. But let me take a couple of calls. We've got Cheryl in Newmarket. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Libby. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? Go ahead. I'm good. I have <clears throat> very strong feelings about back, uh, workers in long-term care. My husband was in long-term care in Newmarket. Unfortunately, he passed away in May. I'm so sorry. He- we dealt with a situation of PSWs being allowed in the building with no vaccination. Now, the last time it happened, the PSW went home to be uh, isolated home. My husband, who was a wheelchair patient, was isolated in his room 24-7 for close to one month. They told me they were understaffed. So the only socialization he had during that time was when they came in to dress him, to feed him, and they left him alone and came back at lunch, fed him, left him alone, came back at dinner. It's a terrible way to live, and it all happened because they will not emphasize their staff to have mandatory vaccinations. And some of the attitudes that are coming out of PSWs throw me. Um, they're saying, if you make me, I'm going to sue, I'm going to go work at Costco. The way I look at it is they have the right not to be vaccinated, as this is how they feel. And long-term care has the right as their employer to say, in order to be employed, this is what we expect, period. Absolutely, so Cheryl. On both sides. Thank you so much for your call, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Okay, thank you. 
And uh, as we we just heard in the news as of today, the Ontario Long-Term Care Association is calling for the government to mandate this. They're even doing it in the United States. So and and in other places, it, to me, it is a no brainer. Let us go to Sue in St. Catharines. Hi, Sue. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I am for mandating it for healthcare workers, for schools. Um, and I even think mandating masks, like I volunteer at a hospital and I was in there last week and a visitor came in, refused to wear a mask. They called the police and had to take her out and she kept saying, I have my rights. The human rights is to keep everybody safe. If somebody chooses not to do something and are endangering everybody else, whether it be long-term care or us seniors at home or wherever, then they would not win in court because they are endangering people's lives. And I think that mandating it, maybe some of these people refusing to get vaccinated will understand and, and giving us either a passport or a certificate and companies can say you can come in or you can't come in. Maybe they'll start to realize what their rights really are. Okay, Sue, thank you for that. Uh- I'm sure this, some of this will end up in court, and uh, I'm sure that it will take a lot of patience to have it wind through the courts. Uh, let us take Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Good afternoon. I think this should be made the number one election issue, and let's hope that Doug Ford sticks with it and doesn't want mandatory vaccination. That would mean a change of government. So uh, that's the way to deal with this. It makes no sense from a scientific standpoint. Uh, we pay for all of the resultant health care when people don't get vaccinated. And we've got this liability issue. And the liability issue sounds great, but it takes a long time to deal that through the courts. be much easier. Make it the number one election issue, and Dougie will be gone, or he will change his mind. Okay, Tap Pat. <clears throat> Thanks for your call. Uh, it's up to uh, all of you in the audience to decide what the major election issue is. John Capobianco, do you think this will be it? Well, you know, within the federal election, for sure. I think that, you know, that we're talking about the, the federal election call being eminent. Uh, some think it even tomorrow, uh, as opposed to next Sunday or this coming Sunday. But nonetheless, I think I think it's going to be one for sure. I think you know we've got, as I mentioned before, we've got some provinces who are who are talking about vaccine passports and and wanting to make this mandatory. I think the the prime minister has talked about you know the, the issue of of whether or not he wants to make passports uh, something that that a federal issue or so. Yeah, it'll be it'll be um, uh, uh, something that will be talked about at debates, especially because we're now going into the fourth wave, and you're also here would be that, you know, people like leader, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who say, hey, look, you know, there's no need for an election. I'll support the Liberals, you know, in, in Parliament. We'll make sure that there's a, a working government for the next two or three years, or at least until the pandemic's over. There's, there's, and I think that kind of message is resonating because we're seeing polls by the day now where more Canadians are apprehensive or at least anxious about going to the polls. And I think the Liberals have a huge battle here on their hands to try to convince people when they actually drop their writ and the Governor General accepts it, uh, to say, why are we going to an election? You can't say this is a toxic environment or the government department doesn't work because the NDP are saying, hey, we're willing to work with you. So it's got to be, you know, and if it looks like it's self-serving, I think that'll work against them. And God forbid if this fourth wave picks up and the numbers keep going up, as we're seeing in other provinces, that could very be that could be a huge trouble for uh, for this prime minister. This up, well, okay, John, you you didn't answer my question, yeah. but I'm moving along which, to which Karen before we before we do shift. I mean, the the caller Pat was talking about Ontario. Karen, do you think oh. this will be a big issue in Ontario? I mean, it's going to be next June. I I think that if if there's a shutdown again and a wave four that sees the schools close and businesses close, then I think it will become an election issue, no question about it. Because those who have taken the vaccine um, and the numbers show that the problems that we're experiencing right now with case numbers and hospitalizations are in the unvaccinated. So if the government decides to defend the rights of those that keep us in lockdown and keep our kids from going to school and keep our you know, university students from getting their education, 
there will be a consequence to that in the polls. There is no question in my mind. Uh, Charles Souza, so yesterday... Uh, three liberal MPs resigned. We had Will Amos, uh, the uh, double flasher. Uh, we had Karen <laughs> McCrimmon, who said in Ottawa, who said she had health issues. Now, um, I tend not to believe it when when people make the uh, the premise and say it's family time. So, w- why would you say that Adam Vaughn, um, former city councillor, f- former reporter, sort of? <laughs> Why would he, why did he step down? You think? Yeah, that's a great question. He surprised me. Now there have been others that have been nominated: Yasser Nakvi, a former Attorney General; uh, Michael uh, Couteau, who uh, has also been nominated uh, as a squeaker; Kareem Bardarsi, uh, Baridisi, he's uh, also now running. He was with the with Kathleen Wynne's uh, uh, group, um, and uh, all three nice guys. So there are obviously people wanting to run and putting their names forward. I'm not sure what took place with Adam Vaughn, um, but it just shocked me. It's been obviously, uh, you know, the election's happening, you know, within within days and within weeks uh, in terms of the call. So, but I'm also surprised that other candidates, other incumbents, haven't also come out in in a fine form. There's Streetsville, which is kind of vacant; no one's happening there. Um, and uh, in a few other writings, they have been silent in their, I think they're all waiting for, I guess, Justin as the leader to make the move and, and rely on his popularity to get us to get through it. But, um, I don't have an answer for you. I guess all that to say, uh, and will the election issue be around vaccines at this point? I'm not sure. And it certainly won't be in June, by the way, uh, to Pat's point, the Ontario government's issue will be resolved by the federal's election by the feds, the determination in this issue. But I don't know. I, I, I'm surprised. I really am that some of these guys left at such short notice. Uh, Karen, did you ever work with Adam on council? Oh, did I? <laughs> uh, you're laughing. I'm laughing because I can tell you stories about working with him at City TV. Uh, oh, well, do you th- and also, yeah, like, do you, you think- know, Libby. Just, uh, do you think that maybe it was just that uh, Trudeau told him you're not going to be in cabinet? That's exactly what I think happened. Yeah. And because when he says, oh, it, Parliament is too partisan for me, he is the most vicious partisan I know. So I, I can't believe that's the reason. I think it's because his ambitions, uh, he reached as far as he was going to go uh, in the Trudeau cabinet. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if he has his eyes on the mayoral seat. Well, he said he said he hasn't. Um, yeah. <laughs> the the stories that I can tell you, I mean, it's it's really inside baseball. But when I worked with him, he was so biased as a, he was the political reporter that many politicians refused to talk to him. And I used to get sent to do those interviews, usually yeah. without being told that the person is really angry and is refusing to talk to Adam. Yeah. And uh, I remember a few times with Adam being very upset and screaming because I I didn't share his bias in the reporting. (laughs) So he's he's so partisan. He's so partisan. And and um, Charles, so who in you know, you mentioned Nasser Yakvi and Nakvi. uh, And I know people in Ottawa are excited about that. But what about uh, replacing Adam in Fort York? Who's who who's there? I have to find somebody now, and it's likely going to be by way of an appointment, or there's going to be a, a quick acclimation into that issue. Uh, that's all they can do. And to your point, uh, Adam's been very vocal and heavily partisan um, and controversial, especially uh, he, he's appealing to members within his that specific riding. He's put at risk, of, I believe, in my opinion, some very uh, progressive measures that could have helped the city and helped a number of things. I don't know um, who's going to replace him. And are they going to want somebody as outspoken as him? Are they going to want somebody who, who sort of toes more the party line? Um, we'll have to wait and see, but that's what, that's what the PMO is going to have to do. Well, yeah, the PMO likes people who will, they like to control everything. I know. Uh, we're, we're almost out of time. So uh, should we talk about Cuomo? For a few minutes, I mean, just yesterday on CNN, they're saying he's in a fighting mood. And I mean, it was pretty clear that his position was becoming untenable. Uh, Karen? Yeah, I, I think it was. I think to that, I mean, however, he feels that he's been unjustly accused. You know, the facts are there and he can't 
he's just lost the moral authority to govern. And at some point, if you can't do your job anymore because of this cloud of controversy that's swirling about you, you just have to look at the, the tea leaves and say, I, I can't do this anymore. I, I need to step aside. And so, you know, he might try to clear his name, you know, okay, but he, he can't be the governor anymore. John, I mean, you know, I was thinking that the whole Me Too movement was basically over. But, you know, here we have this. We just heard one of the accusers of Prince Andrew was suing him. Yeah, and you know what? I thought the writing was on the wall with Governor Cuomo. I think it was right for him to want to fight it, because obviously, you know, until you're proven guilty, you know, you want to be able to to fight to fight the allegations. And but when the report came back, uh, you know, and the findings were, were damning in the sense that they they acknowledged that he did in fact um, harass uh, his staff and so forth. Like that was that was one death knell. The second was when the president of the United States, uh, uh, you know, President Biden, came back and said he should resign. At that point, I knew it was just a matter of days because when you have the president of the United States, who by the way is from the same party as Governor Cuomo, is Democrat, uh, there's not much life you've got left uh, after that. So it was just a matter of days. So I'm not surprised, and it is good good news for the Me Too movement because. You you know, it doesn't again whether or not you're Republican or Democrat, whatever it is. If you if you are found guilty of, of, of sexual harassment uh, and you're in a public office, you should you should step down. Okay, uh, we're almost out of time, and I, I want to take a couple of calls from people who've been waiting patiently, and then I'll give Charles the last word. Uh, we have Sally in St. Catharines. Hi, Sally. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. I just wanted to comment on the long-term care workers and healthcare workers being mandated to have their shots. My mother went into long-term care last week, so this is my first direct access that I've had into long-term care to see it myself. And they are so ridiculously short-staffed that I would be afraid if it was mandated that we would lose even more healthcare workers. My own family physician has had two stress leaves during COVID um, and all these PSWs and nurses and everything that are just totally, completely burnt out that are leaving the profession. If you add one more thing, I understand the importance of making sure that everybody is healthy and everything, but at my mom's long-term care facility, if you're not vaccinated, they actually have a trailer out front with tests that you have to get tested before you can go in and you are masked and you are goggled and you are sanitized after your negative test and then you can go in. Well, if that's, I, I mean, as I said, we just reported that the Long-Term Care Association, which represents mostly for-profit homes, said they want to make it mandatory because I think that uh, the extra testing and education and all these measures are also time-consuming and expensive. Uh, and but Sally, what you're saying is an argument that many people have said that more people will leave the profession, and uh, I guess we'd have to see if that happens. Uh, yeah, but my mom I, on her whole floor, there are two people right now that are taking care of a whole floor. They are short, so short staffed. Like it, that's scary. I mean, they're lovely people. But I'm so grateful that they're there and everything. But but yeah, to scare off by taking away, I guess. Or, or mandating one more thing. It could be the straw that broke the camel's back for some of these people that are already overworked, underpaid, and, and stressed. Well, supposedly they should be getting more money. They should be hiring more people. Um, yeah. yeah. Sally, I wish you all the best, and I hope your mother gets great care in her Thank facility. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, we are really out of time. Uh, people on the lines will be talking about COVID and travel in the next block, but Free For All Friday is coming up. And as promised, I'm going to give Charles a very quick last word on the uh, election, thanks. perhaps. Thanks, Libby. Great discussion today. I do want to give out a shout out to a politician who, for me, represents something beyond party lines. He's nonpartisan, but he was the premier of this province as a conservative. He was pro-economy, pro-business, but he was also pro-education, pro-government, recognized his social requirements. In fact, he would argue, and he used to call me during my many budgets that I did to give me some of his advice and encouragement. The guy was more left than me in some respects. <laughs> I think I was more right of center than Bill Davis, but we lost a good man. He was an open-minded yeah. individual, and I wish his family and his legacy will live on forever. Great man. Yes, well, I think we all agree with that.
Yeah. Okay. Um, I bet that by the next time we talk, uh, we might be in full-on election mode. We'll see. Bring it on. Bring it on. Thanks so much, John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, and Charles Souza. Thanks, Libby. Thank you. Okay, we've got to take a break. When we come back, um, are Canadians being treated unfairly in terms of travel? I mean, some of the restrictions, even for fully vaccinated Canadians, are uh, pretty mind-boggling. We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, those of us who are fully vaccinated are looking forward to resuming more normal life, including travel. But it can seem that Canadians are not being treated fairly. Yesterday, we opened the land border to double vaxxed visitors from the United States. They have not reciprocated. The UK is opening to fully vaccinated Americans, but not to us. France has accepted the UK version of the AstraZeneca vaccine, but not the Covishield produced in India, which most of us received. By the way, I think that's just because they want to keep Indian people out. And uh, I don't think the U.S. accepts AstraZeneca at all. And then there's the whole question of who likes mixed doses, which our government advised us to take. So the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. Let's bring in Martin Firestone, the president of Travel Secure. Hi, Marty. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, did you expect this kind of mishmash and, and that Canadians would be treated this way when, you know, compared to the rest of the world, we actually haven't done that badly? No, I I'm hope I'm not dating myself, but I, I think we feel like Rodney Dangerfield here, like we're, <laughs> we're getting no respect. There's no answer for it. I mean, the U.S. one, one could argue that maybe they don't want to open Mexico quite ready now, so they're timing both openings. The England one makes no sense. And when asked why they did it, they don't even have an answer. And the mixed vaccines, it's, it's just totally one confusing moment after another. Let me ask you this. So the Americans haven't opened up the land border, but you can fly in. And uh, are they, if you fly in, do you have to show proof of vaccination? And do they accept AstraZeneca? Yes. So Nothing has been determined yet. You can you fly in now. There is no proof of vaccination. There is no quarantine. There is no questions about AstraZeneca. When the land border issue comes up again on August 21st and they do open it or don't open it, let's assume they do, they will then now have clear attachments to it, such as being fully vaccinated, such as accepting or not accepting AZ, and it will apply to both air and land. So I think that's our next chance or opportunity to see what's going to happen. And and what about this France thing saying they're accepting some AstraZeneca, okay, the one that millions of British citizens got, but not ours? Yeah, it's, it's bizarre that the Covishield is still AstraZeneca, but it's not produced the Oxford uh, version of it. So it's absolutely, if someone were to sit back and look at this, they t- something is totally wrong here. And that's very frustrating to Canadians who were, A, told to go with mixed vaccines, told to go with the AstraZeneca that was from India, and that there'd be no issues. And now it's looking like it's falling apart all over the place. Well, do you think that with France, it's, they just want to keep people from India out? I, I don't know. You know, I can't imagine that that would be the reason. But I'll tell you what is going to happen with cruise ships and everything else until we get this all straightened out is that they're going to need to get some vaccine passports in place so that we know that people all on that ship are double vaccinated. All those people at that restaurant, at that sports attraction, at that movie cinema. I, I just think this is the way it's going. Well, it's not going that way here if you listen to the premier. I mean, the the federal government has promised some kind of vaccine passport, but for international travel. And the premier is saying, oh, he doesn't believe in it. Quebec, though, does. And I think today or tomorrow they're announcing their version of it. But it's got to come from the federal end, not the provincial end, so that the Ontario Premier isn't the one that's calling the shots on this. They have got to come out with a universal, lack of a better word, vaccine certificate 
that can be used for all Canadians traveling abroad or within their country, whatever thing they're attending. Yeah, uh, what have you been hearing from your clients? Is this putting a crimp in people's plans? Are they saying, the heck with this, if I travel, I'll travel inside Canada? Yeah, you, you know, this, I thought we were so past this. The snowbirds that we talked about many times last year, there was no going, and I was advising against travel, as you know. This year, I had it all figured out, and I suspected that everybody's double vaccinated. They should be able to go away. And now things are running rampant in the States again, and, and numbers are going up, and hospitalizations are going up. So all of a sudden, I'm getting calls galore saying, I don't know if I'm going away this year again, which to me would be disastrous if for two straight years in a row, people are not going down and traveling at this point. So this is something we've got to watch very closely. Mm-hmm. And what about, um, I don't know if advocacy is is the right word for Canadians, you know, in the travel industry? It's hard to say exactly what we can do next to, to gain a little respect. As a country, we are miles ahead of so many other countries with respect to how many are vaccinated and and the few cases that we had. That's the problem now. All of a sudden, Ontario is up to 300, 400 a day when it was down to 150. So I just think that the next month or two, it's going to absolutely roll out what the future holds and whether we can salvage this, this uh, upcoming winter and next summer international travel. Well, I, in terms of snowbirds, isn't uh, the end of the summer kind of the time when they at least buy their insurance? Absolutely. Early bird specials and everything are in the month of August, which we're in right now. And all of them are frustrated to no end, especially the renters who are now putting out twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 for six months. And by the way, rental costs and everything have gone through the roof in Florida. So they want to buy trip cancellation now. But I can't offer trip cancellation that will cover them for a COVID-related incident if the border should close down again and you can't fly down there. So they're getting frustrated because they're putting out large amounts of money and can't get the trip cancellation that they so require at this point. Uh, so what are you going to do? Are you just kind of rolling with it or what? Well, from a medical perspective, great news. Uh, the insurance companies are suggesting that if you are double vaccinated, you don't even need a COVID rider anymore. So in fact, the premiums for travel insurance, medical, will be staying the same or going down versus going up. But trip cancellation, you're rolling the dice. I'm basically telling them, guys, it can't be a reason related to COVID as to why you're canceling. So understand that when you're buying this product and know that if that is the reason, you could be out a lot of money. So in your lease, try to negotiate that if it is COVID-related, it can be rolled over to the ensuing year, etc. And so are people not booking then or what? No, they're, the, the Christmas vacation crowd, which typically I have a lot of, is saying I cannot put down a $5,000 deposit or even a, you know, a larger deposit for my family of five because you're giving me no confidence that if I had a claim that it would get covered if it was because the hotel said, sorry, we're not open for business, the country border is closed, something like that. So it's a big hesitancy factor going on now with respect to people booking Christmas vacations this year. Okay, uh, yet another kind of hesitancy we have to deal with. Yep. Anything you want to leave us with, Marty? No, just I, I think whatever country you're hoping to go to or planning on going to, call ahead and find out where their position is, A, with vaccinations, fully vaccinations, mixed vaccines, type of AstraZeneca, and get all the answers because to travel all the way there and find out you can't get in, that will be a very, very difficult moment. Okay. Martin Firestone, thanks so much. And hopefully we can check back with you shortly and maybe some things will have cleared up by then. My pleasure. Anytime. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Right. We have to take another break. Now, uh, call us if you're thinking of traveling. The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 Now, one of the extra costs that you'll have to, if you want to travel to another country, you need a PCR test. Now, those things, the costs for those are kind of all over the map. We'll be talking about that with Justin Bates. And also, you remember we heard about all these Moderna doses that people don't want that are might expire. We'll see what the situation is there on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. If you are planning to travel, it's not just the vaccinations you have to worry about. For most places, you will need a negative PCR test no more than 72 hours before your trip. They don't come cheap, and there is a big range between $100 and $200, depending on the pharmacy or clinic you use. And you need to check the processing time to make sure that you get it back on time for boarding the plane. Um, the numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now let's go to Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Hi, Justin. Good afternoon. Great to be back with you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. So why is there such a big discrepancy in the prices for these tests? It's a great question. And when we started this program in pharmacies back in September of 2020, the cost related to a PCR test for travel was actually included as part of the public program. And then as we approached December of the same year, the government made a decision to essentially delist that. And that shifted out the program for travel to a private-based model, which means that pharmacies need to uh, procure the services of a private lab organization to be able to receive the test kits and, of course, to then have the test results from the specimen collection analyzed. Um, And each pharmacy will have negotiated a different deal, and the costs are varied across the various um, private lab uh, organizations. So that's essentially the model. It's a private pay model for travel. So, I mean, but it's a pretty big, like there's a 100% difference. There are some pharmacies where you can get it around 100 bucks. apparently, though I have to say I haven't seen them. I was helping my husband get a test, and then on 200 bucks, there's a big difference. There is, and there'll be different costs with different lab companies, everything from the cost of the shipping, uh, depending on where that pharmacy is located from the lab. The packaging is also a cost. It has to be packaged in a certain container with ice packs. The test kits themselves uh, vary in the the cost. Um, And so that's all negotiated between a a pharmacy and the lab organization, which is why you would see a range. And there's different margin built into that, depending again on the negotiation between labs and, and pharmacies. I think the median is somewhere in about 150 uh, that we're seeing uh, across uh, the province, um, and some will be slightly cheaper, some will be more. It's also important to check the destination to see if they actually require a PCR test, or in some cases, a rapid antigen test would be uh, sufficient. So, for example, traveling to the U.S., uh, as of recently, you could get a, for essential travel, of course, at that time, uh, an antigen test was enough. And there are cases where you can get that done at a pharmacy for $40. So um, the type of test will matter as well. Okay. I mean, it, and you got to check what's happening inside where you are. I mean, this was a few weeks ago, but uh, as I said, my husband needed a $200 test to get on the plane. And then uh, when he was inside Germany, he needed a, a one or two other tests. I, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't remember exactly where he was going. And that's in addition to when he came home, He they gave him a test, like there was a take-home test that the government gave him. But but there were about three tests inside this trip. So you better check on that depending on where you're traveling to. Uh, I'd like to hear from Kate in Toronto. Hi, Kate. Hi. Um, yes, I just got back from Florida on Sunday, and uh, it was it was quite a nightmare, and I, I wouldn't do it again. Uh, before we went, we were told we had to have a PCR test, so that was before we could get on the plane, and that's so not the antigen test, but the other the other right. one. And uh, that was one hundred and fifty dollars. And then when we got to Florida. We heard from some people that they just got the antigen test, but apparently it was their Canada we flew with, and it said we had to have a PCR test. So that's what we did. Um, when we got off the plane, we just got off the plane and, and walked out, and there was nobody checking anything. <laughs> and, and then um, when, while we were in Florida, now curiously, some people were wearing masks, some people were not, some people were not vaccinated, not going to get vaccinated, and they, you know, that whole thing. 
So that was a little nerve-wracking. And then coming back, we had to get, again, before we could get on the plane, um, another PCR test. An antigen test wasn't good enough. So we had to go to another lab. We were, we, we, we tried to go to CVS, and um, that was going to take three to five days, they told us. But we only had 48 hours, right, or 72 hours. So that wasn't going to work. So we found another lab uh, to do the test, and that was $180 U.S. Yeah. So then, so uh, basically the, the, the COVID test cost more than the flight. <laughs> or about the same. Yeah. Um, and, and it really wasn't worth it. And then when we got back, and then this is the part that drives me, that has really infuriated me. When we got back to Canada and we got off the plane, I mean, we're sitting elbow to elbow, the full flight, and then they, they come on with the announcement to, you know, socially distance. Oh, yeah, right. And we got off the plane and we, you know, trailed down and we got up into this area where everybody was just standing milling around because I guess they were congested in customs. We never really got a clear answer, but more people kept coming and we were just, we were, it was like a rush hour in the subway in the before days. You, you know what, Kate? I have heard that from people. Yeah. <laughs> Frankly, and they would let they would open these gates and let a few people through, and then of course everybody moves forward, and then they they say no stop. So the people in front stop. The people at the back have already moved forward. They're not moving back. So we just got more and more and more compressed, and eventually we got through that, and that took about half an hour, and then we got down to the customs area, and the cattle gates for the for the poor souls that don't have their card, we're all lined up in there. And I, I had my Nexus card, but it took us a good 20 minutes to get through the Nexus line because not all the machines were operational. And they didn't have, uh, they didn't have customs people, customs agents at every wicket either. And then we got through that. And then uh, one of my traveling companions was told that she had to have um, a test, a, a rapid test at the airport. So she went off to try and do that, and that took her another half an hour of running around trying to do that. In the meantime, my other traveling companion and myself, when we were walking through, we got handed these little boxes and said that we had to do an at-home test. Right, you do. Yes. Um, Mm-hmm. Kate, Kate, I, I need to uh, get some comments from Justin, but uh, thanks for telling us all about the saga. Uh, yeah, so again, it's like it was PCR play, uh, test to get on the plane, T- PCR test to get back on the plane uh, to come back. And then once you get back, and this is for fully vaccinated people, they hand you a little box, which you don't have to pay for. And you hook up on video with a nurse who will watch you take the swab and do the test correctly. It'll be picked up by courier. And I believe this is courtesy of the taxpayers. Uh, and you need that test. And after that, you won't be bothered theoretically, though uh, there are glitches and you can still be bothered from the government, Justin. So it's, it's an added expense, definitely, if you want to travel and i've heard that the conditions in the airport aren't great i don't know it certainly is an added expense and and it sounds like the different airlines are adhering to different sets of guidelines because we know that from the u.s customs side that the pcr test is not required rapid antigen but people are hearing different from a particular airline so that that creates some challenges. But certainly to arrive back in Canada, the requirement is a PCR test within 72 hours. Canada won't accept the rapid antigen test. And a large part of this, when you get back, also to take that second test, is to avoid the quarantine period yeah. uh, for fully vaccinated people. So, I mean, certainly if you didn't want to do that, you would have to then quarantine for 14 days. But we know that these things are evolving. The guidelines are changing as we open up the border. And I think you'll see further changes and adjustments to the to the program. It doesn't surprise me that uh, Florida is not necessarily enforcing some of these restrictions. Yeah, we know that, who the governor have, is yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. I think, didn't, so didn't he make, the, the, he made it illegal for businesses to ask for a mask mandate. Yeah, under the auspices of this uh, civil liberties and freedom, you see some states that are uh, not um, enforcing and or are making it um, illegal to ask people. And, and that, of course, you look at the case counts, it's not surprising to see them rising uh, quite rapidly. So 
uh, it is challenging. It is costly. Um, our uh, advocacy to the government was certainly for essential travel, the cost should not be borne by the individual, that it should still be covered under the public plan. Um, that said, they've continued to delist it. And access to some of these PCR testing is limited. Uh, we only have 211 pharmacies that are even part of the program in spite of our efforts to try to expand that um, and also evolve the program into more rapid antigen testing, which is less costly, and the results come back uh, within 15 minutes. Yeah, well, you know, honestly, if people want to travel for pleasure, and traveling does not seem like a pleasure these days, it's it's expensive to begin with, and you've got to figure that in. I mean, I don't know that taxpayers want to cover people's leisure travel right now. Um, we're almost out of time, Justin. Uh, what is the situation with all those Moderna doses in pharmacies that are set to expire? Well, it's disappointing that we found ourselves in a precarious position like that where we had to dispose of perfectly fine. You Moderna did dispose doses. of it? Yeah, many uh, thousands of doses had to be discarded uh, because of the 30-day window. They only have that runway when they arrive at the pharmacy in a thawed state. So we saw a steep decline in demand for Moderna, which we attribute to a couple of things. One, Moderna's had some challenges around brand awareness from the beginning of the vaccine rollout, but also there's continued concerns and hesitancy around mixing and along the theme of travel countries and destinations that still do not recognize mixing of doses between mRNAs or AZ to an mRNA vaccine causes people uh, pause. And uh, we know the majority of people got Pfizer as a first dose because there were Moderna supply issues. So that leaves a very small cohort of people to get a Moderna as a, as a second dose. So that left us uh, in the position of having to dispose of. Um, we pushed really hard and I'm disappointed that the government didn't move quickly on allowing for third shots for immunocompromised individuals, those in high-risk populations, which would have allowed us to avoid the wastage. But um, at this point, uh, we've already adjusted our ordering and uh, have ordered less Moderna now. So um, from that perspective, there won't be further wastage. Can you give me an idea of how much wastage there was? It seems like a crime. It, it certainly does. Um, and that uh, was is our worst-case scenario in spite of all of our efforts to proactively reach out to patients to look at transferring doses into the healthcare system and even donate them to other countries, uh, we exhausted every option. But we think it's uh, certainly in the tens of thousands um, in Ontario, and it won't just be isolated to pharmacy. The same problem existed with primary care and public health units. We won't know the exact number until it's fully documented into the COVAX ON system, and government provides a report. Overall, the percentage of wastage is small when compared to the total administered doses, but um, we found ourselves in that scenario this past uh, week. I'm very sorry to hear that. And and hey, guess what? Guess what factory we're getting as an election goodie, Moderna. There you go. There you go. Um, uh, you know, we're going to have to revisit it. Justin Bates, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I really appreciate your time. Thanks. In my pleasure. And people, um, free for all Fridays coming up, but we may have to revisit all of this. Keep your calls coming. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.